Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the January 8th, 2024 edition of Sports News. My name is Philip Bradbury. Well, as usual, there's a lot going on in the sports world, both on and off the field. We have the college football playoff national championship is going on right now as you are listening to this between the Michigan Wolverines and the Washington Huskies. We also have the end of the NFL season, the regular season, and we have the playoff schedule some seedings and predictions for the wild card and divisional playoff rounds. And there's some news in baseball as well. We also, if we can get to it in time, have the ranking of the top 10 in tennis. So let's jump right in. This article by the ESPN staff, and it came out today on ESPN.com. The time has almost come to crown the national champion in college football with the Michigan Wolverines facing the Washington Huskies. Kickoff was at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time on ESPN TV as well as ESPN Radio, which in the Denver market is 104.3 The Fan on the FM dial. By now, the game is in the second quarter as you were listening to this. In the semifinals, Michigan knocked off Alabama and Washington held off Texas, setting up an intriguing battle of the unbeaten. One team will walk away with its first title in more than 25 years. In anticipation of Monday night's clash, we asked ESPN's college football reporters, analysts, commentators, and pundits for their predictions for the final score, and the results were a bit of a surprise. Although Michigan is the betting favorite and has the advantage based on various metrics, our experts sided with Washington by a 2-to-1 margin. The Huskies were the pick of 32 of our 48 procrastinators. Of those who picked Washington, 24 of 32, and that's 75%, expect the winning margin to be four points or less. Michigan backers are a bit more confident with 7 of 16 calling for a victory of more than four points. Our selectors also are expecting a shootout, with the average total points prediction at 58.9. The over-under betting total is 56.5. The lowest point total predicted was 38, and the highest prediction was 77 points scored. The most popular score pick was Washington winning 31-27, which was predicted five times. Though Sports News will have a recap and a deep dive on the star players and the dramas that unfolded, so you obviously want to tune in for that. Let's go back a few days here. This article by Chris Lowe, he is an ESPN senior writer, written on January 2nd. And this came from Pasadena, California, after the Rose Bowl game. A bare-chested Blake Corum stood in front of his locker on Monday in the bowels of the Rose Bowl Stadium when a Michigan staffer handed him a ringing cell phone. It's your father, he said, handing Corum the phone. Only minutes earlier, Corum had scored the winning touchdown in overtime on a 17-yard run to beat Alabama 27-20 in the Rose Bowl game, exercising 
Michigan's college football playoff demons, and more importantly, putting the Wolverines in position to win their first national championship since 1997. Horm tried to explain to his father, who was naturally excited, that he was surrounded by a horde of media and was do his best to meet him outside when he was finished. But no explanation was needed for what Michigan did to Alabama on a game-saving touchdown drive late in regulation that fans of the maize and blue will be talking about for some time. Nor for the Wolverines sledgehammering their way into the end zone in just two plays in overtime. He just kept saying, do or die. Do we want this to be the last time we play together, Coram said? We were able to come together as a unit, as brothers, on that drive and their timing couldn't have been better. Wolverines had seemingly gone belly up on offense. In their first four drives of the second half, they punted three times and missed the field goal, managing all of 44 yards in those four possessions. Yeah, it goes through your mind, sort of, here we go, after some of what's happened in the past when we got here, says Michigan offensive guard Trevor Keegan. And he was referring to Michigan's losses in the CFB semifinals in the last two seasons. But we play for each other. We've overcome obstacles and adversity. People can't. People can say it's adversity. People can say we cheated, but I really don't give a fuck. It was it was adversity and this team relied on each other and it showed in that last quarter on that drive and in that overtime. Quarterback J.J. McCarthy said the playoff frustration was on everybody's mind when Michigan huddled for its drive after Alabama had taken a 2013 lead and seized all of the momentum. The Wolverines dominated the line of scrimmage in the first half that had only a 13-10 lead at the half. We didn't get what we came to get these past two years, and that's the reason we're here today, says McCarthy, who threw three touchdown passes, including a four-yarder to Roman Wilson that capped Michigan's clutch eight-play 75-yard drive to tie the game with 138 to play in regulation. Nothing was going to get in our way this time. We believed in that huddle that we were going to get it done, and so did everybody on the sideline. No play was bigger in Michigan's game-tying drive than McCarthy's short pass to Corum on a fourth and two. Corum turned it into a 27-yard gain. An illegal block penalty brought it back 10 yards, but the Wolverines had a first down and renewed life with just less than three minutes to play. When I saw Blake, man, I saw his eyes. It was like there was a devil in his eyes or something, Keegan said. On that critical fourth down play, Corum noticed that Alabama cornerback scooted inside with the receiver, meaning Corum saw nothing but green turf. We had just a we had just run a little bit of a different version of it, he said, and they were out there in the flats with me. And as we motioned on that fourth down and I bumped and saw that corner over there on our receiver, I was like, I know he's going with him. And he did. And it just opened up. And once Michigan scored to tie the game, Corm said that he could see in the Alabama players' eyes that they knew they were in trouble. As soon as we went into overtime, I knew we had the momentum. I knew we were going to be victorious, Corm said. The Michigan defense still had to make a fourth down stop in overtime when Alabama quarterback Jalen Milrow was stuffed at the two-yard line but Michigan defensive tackle Chris Jenkins said it was the offense that changed the complexion of the game 
during those final minutes of the fourth quarter. Those minutes won't soon be forgotten by Michigan fans who took over Pasadena on Monday and celebrated deep into the West Coast night. They never flinch, and that's the thing we love about our offense, no matter what's going on, no matter if the odds are stacked against them, no matter if mistakes are made, Jenkins said. They're never going to flinch in the biggest moments. They're always going to hold their ground, do what they do best, and that's the biggest thing. They always ball out. It may be scary. It may get your heart pumping in the sideline, but you know that they're going to handle business. This next article is written by Paolo Ugetti. He's a writer for ESPN. Came out on January 1st after that Michigan game. This is the greatest quarterback in the University of Michigan college football history, says Coach Jim Harbaugh after the game with McCarthy by his side. Got a long way to go to get to where Tom Brady eventually got to, which is the GOAT, which is greatest of all time. But in a college career, there's been nobody at Michigan better than J.J. I know we talk about it, an allegation of quarterbacks. He is that guy. McCarthy, like he had been all season long, was not flashy, nor did he produce plays that will fill highlight reels for years to come. But when it mattered most, the junior quarterback, who finished with 221 passing yards and three touchdowns en route to earning the Offensive Player of the Game Award, ensured that his name will be remembered in Wolverine's lore. After holding a halftime lead that the Tide flipped in their favor with a touchdown drive early in the fourth quarter, Michigan's title game hopes fell on McCarthy's shoulders. The past two years for McCarthy had ended here with his team losing in the college football playoff semifinals. With a third straight year of elimination in the balance, McCarthy and the Michigan offense went to work stitching together a gritty 75-yard drive that featured a clutch 27-yard pass from McCarthy to running back Blake Corum on that fourth and two, which we already had talked about. In the extra period that followed, McCarthy said Michigan wanted the ball to start, and then the quarterback Harbaugh declared the best in Michigan history, handed the baton to one of the best running backs in program history. It took only two plays, an eight-yard run and a 17-yard touchdown run from Corum to put Michigan ahead. It was do or die, Corum said. I made a promise to Michigan fans before the season, and I had to stand on what I said. We were able to do what we had to do to come out victorious. Yet despite the effort that McCarthy and the Michigan offense put forth in the end, it fell to the Wolverines' defense to make a stop. Alabama's first overtime possession came down to a fourth and goal from the third yard, three-yard line, and defensive coordinator Jesse Minter and his staff had a pretty good idea that Alabama was going to give quarterback Jalen Milrow the ball. We just wanted to try to keep him from being able to dictate the terms on that play, Minter said of Milrow. We wanted to be the aggressor. Milrow kept the ball and attempted to rush up the middle for what would have been a game-tying score. But as he tried to cross the line of scrimmage, a swarm of defenders stopped him in his tracks, sending the Michigan faithful at the Rose Bowl into pandemonium and the team rushing onto the field. The call, which Harbaugh later said called Twister, has a pretty simple directive. We just had everybody in there, Harbaugh said. It was everybody, everybody there, everybody to the ball. We wedged all four gaps, says defensive line coach Mike Elston. 
He had a feeling that they'd run with him. The stop was emblematic of Michigan's physical dominance throughout the game, which showed itself over the course of the first half. The Wolverines' defensive linemen turned Alabama's backfield into their playground, limiting the Tide's running game to 43 yards in the first half and 116 yards pa- uh, passing yards in the entire game. They suffocated their offensive line and sacked Milrow five times. So Michigan awaited the semifinal between Washington and Texas. It what, it's what it means to these guys, to our players the most, Harbaugh said when asked what that moment means to him and what it would mean to win the national championship. To them, to be champions, for their parents, to have their son be a champion, their brothers and sisters, their grandparents, for our coaches, for my kids, to have a dad be champion. And then my parents, just those people that get to feel what that's like. My ecstatic joy is for our players and our coaches and our fans and our families that they get the experience that they, they get to experience that joy of being a champion. Here's another insight by Anthony Garib. He's an ESPN staff writer, also came out on January 1st. The Wolverines advanced to their first national championship game in the BCS-CFB era since 1998. It's also the first ever college football playoff victory for Michigan and the Wolverines' first bowl game win since the 2016 Citrus Bowl. Michigan now has a school record of 14 wins, tying the Big Ten record for the most in a season. Michigan handed Alabama its first college football playoff semifinal loss since the inaugural 2014 playoff semifinals at the Sugar Bowl. The Crimson Tide lost 42-35 to the Ohio State Buckeyes in that contest. So here's a look back at what the world was like the last time Alabama lost a semifinal game. The ALS Association saw a 187% increase in funding as over 17 million people participated in the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge in 2014. Then head coach of the San Francisco 49ers, Jim Harbaugh, participated in the challenge, cracking a smile while the water hit him. Players from Alabama's football team participated as well. They stood side by side with head coach Nick Saban in the middle as they had water dumped on them. Guardians of the Galaxy dominated the box office. After four successful seasons as the 49ers head coach, Jim Harbaugh jumped back to the college football world. Since then, Michigan has a win-loss record of 85-25 and 25 and has won three consecutive Big Ten championships. Under Harbaugh, the Wolverines have defeated their biggest rivals, the Ohio State Buckeyes, in three straight seasons for the first time since 1990. Five through 1997, but most importantly, they've now secured a national championship berth. A blank space tops the charts. No different than going into 2024, Taylor Swift took up residency at the top of the Billboard Hot 100. In the week before 2015, Swift's song Blank Space was slotted in at number one, while Shake It Off dropped to number 10. 
She had three songs on the charts heading into 2015 and in 2024, a testament to her consistency. Swift's album 1989, released in October of 2014, became the number one album of the year with 3.66 million copies sold. Most of the stars were still in elementary school. Two of the Rose Bowl's top performers were still years away from high school. Alabama running back J.C. McClellan was 12, while Michigan's quarterback J.J. McCarthy was weeks away from turning 12 years old himself. One of the oldest current Wolverine players, Corum, had recently turned 14 when the Crimson Tide lost. So, some exciting stats, and like I said, we will keep you filled in on the drama after the game is over. All right, turning to the NFL now. The regular season is over. This article is compiled by the ESPN staff, and it came out yesterday, January 7th. The six matchups for the wildcard round of the 2023 NFL playoffs are set with the Cleveland Browns at the Houston, Texas, as the first matchup of the weekend. The San Francisco 49ers and the Baltimore Ravens are the number one seeds in their respective conferences, the 49ers in the NFC and the Ravens in the AFC, and both have earned bye weeks through the divisional round. Wild Card Weekend will feature games this coming Saturday, January 13th, Sunday the 14th, and then again Monday the 15th. The game on Monday between the Philadelphia Eagles at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers will air on ESPN and ABC, as well as ESPN Plus and ESPN2, and will be on ESPN Radio as well. The divisional round will take place January 20th and 21st and include four games that we determine who moves on to the conference championships on January 28th. So here's what we know about the AOC and NFC brackets, including seeding, TV times, and the schedule of games from wildcard weekend up through Super Bowl 58, which will be played February 11th at Allegant Stadium in Las Vegas. So for the wildcard weekend, and that's this coming weekend and Monday, so the 13th, 14th, and 15th, for the NFC, it's the number seven seed Green Bay Packers at the number two seed Dallas Cowboys. That was on Sunday at 4.30 Eastern, which will be 2.30 Mountain Time on Fox. And then the number six seed LA Rams at the number three Detroit Lions. That is the Sunday evening game, and it will be at 6.15 p.m. Mountain Time on NBC. Also that night will be fifth seed Philadelphia Eagles at the fourth seed Tampa Bay Buccaneers. That game is on Monday at eight o'clock, at actually six o'clock on Mountain Time, and it is on ESPN, ESPN two, ESPN plus, ESPN radio, and ABC. And the 49ers have the bye week. On the AFC side, the Fifth seed Cleveland Browns at the number four Houston Texans. That's at Saturday at 2.30 Eastern uh, Mountain Time on NBC. 
the number six seed Miami Dolphins at the number three Kansas City Chiefs. That is the Saturday evening game at 6.15 on Peacock. The number seven seed Pittsburgh Steelers will be at the number two Buffalo Bills. That is a Sunday game at 11 a.m. Mountain Time on CBS. And for the AFC, the Ravens have the bye week. In the divisional round, there will be four divisional round games, two on the January 20th and two on the 21st. The times will come at a later date. But what we know so far, in the NFC, the number one seed 49ers will host the team with the lowest seed. In the AFC, the number one seed Ravens will host the team with the lowest seed. And then the conference championships on January 28th, and those games will be played at the homes of the highest remaining seeds for each conference. The NFC Championship game will be on Fox on the 28th with game time still to be announced. And the AFC Championship game will also be on the 28th and it will be on CBS. And then, of course, Super Bowl 57 on February 11th. And that game will air on CBS and Usher will perform during the halftime show. There's an amusing story I found. This is by Adam Teicher. He's a staff writer for ESPN. Came out yesterday, January 7th, from Inglewood, California. Chris Jones is $1.25 million richer after sacking Los Angeles Chargers quarterback Easton Stick yesterday. And after the game, he already had plans for the money. The whole defensive line gets a Rolex, Jones said, of the third quarter sack that gave him 10 and a half this season, allowing him to collect the bonus that he negotiated into his contract at the start of the season. Defensive coordinator Steve Spagnuolo gets a Rolex. The coaches get a Rolex because I think it takes a collective effort in order to reach those types of goals. The sack touched off a serious celebration among Jones and his teammates as he headed off the field and then on the sideline. He had told his linemates of his Rolex plans, and that no doubt had something to do with the celebration. I've never been with an older guy that did something like that, said defensive lineman Charles Omanehu, one of the players celebrating with Jones. So that's a special thing. Pretty cool. The Chiefs last week clinched the AFC West Championship and the third conference playoff seed, so they benched a lot of their stars for the game, Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey among them. Jones said his agreement with Coach Andy Reid was to play the first quarter only, but he didn't sack stick then or any time in the first half. I had to beg him for one more series, Jones said. He gave me the finger like, one more and you're done. So I went onto the field praying to God, like, oh, my God, please. One quarter turned into two quarters. So thankful to Coach Reed that he allowed me to play because this was more so about the bye week. I didn't have to play, but the team allowed me to play. So super grateful. Jones almost got the stick on a handful of occasions earlier in the game, but couldn't get him to the ground. Shortly before the sack, he talked with stick during an injury timeout. I told him, I'm going to keep chasing you because I want my sack, Jones said. I was like, I'm going to get you too. 
Reed said that he agreed to play Jones in what amounted to a meaningless game for the Chiefs because of the money involved. He wanted the opportunity, though I gave him the opportunity to start off with third downs, and then as it went on, he played a couple of first and second downs as well. He wanted to get that done. The $1.25 million, that's a couple of cheeseburgers right there. One man's Rolex watch, it seems, are another man's cheeseburgers. And there's always a lot of rules in NFL games, a lot of things that have to take place before a play can even commence. This article is by Kevin Seifert, staff writer for ESPN, came out on January 2nd. In a video distributed last Tuesday, the NFL reminded its team players to bear the burden of ensuring that they have properly reported as eligible receivers. A clear response to last weekend's chaotic finish in the Dallas Cowboys' 2019 victory over the Detroit Lions. Players who wear numbers 50 through 79 or 90 through 99 must report to the referee in order to be eligible to receive a pass. For the play in question, Lions left tackle Taylor Decker, who wears number 68, approached referee Brad Allen to report as eligible. It's the responsibility of the player to be sure that change in status is clearly communicated to the referee by both a physical signal with his hands up and down in front of his chest and to report to the referee his intention to report as an eligible re receiver, says NFL Senior Vice President Walt Anderson. The two other Lions offensive linemen, tackles Dan Skipper and Penne Sewell, also approached Allen in an attempt to confuse the Cowboys on who ultimately would be the eligible receiver. Allen did not appear to acknowledge Decker and instead declared Skipper as eligible. As a result, Decker was ineligible and had committed illegal touching when he caught what would have been a go-ahead two-point conversion with 23 seconds remaining in the game. Because Skipper lined up at right tackle as an eligible player, and next to tight end Sam Laporta, the Lions also committed an illegal formation foul on the play. Skipper said Saturday night that he had not declared himself eligible. The video does not reference the role for the referee in declaring the correct player eligible. ESPN's Adam Scheffler reported that Allen is expected to be downgraded for the play and his Refereeing crew is not expected to receive a postseason assignment. Its final game of the 2023 season will come in Saturday's game between the Steelers and the Ravens. And there's uh, some sad news in the football world. This article by Field Level Media, and it came out yesterday, January 7th. Former NFL linebacker Jack. Quirick, who won a Super Bowl with the Los Angeles Raiders in 1984, has passed away. He was 64, and no cause of death was announced. Squirick was instrumental to Los Angeles' victory in Super Bowl 18, picking off Washington quarterback Joe Theismann and scampering to the end zone for a 12-yard pick six that gave the Raiders a 21-3 lead. 
Los Angeles, as the Raiders were known then, wound up winning that game 38-9. to The Raiders family is mourning the loss of Jack Squirick, who passed away on Friday, the Raiders said in a statement. Squirick played four years for the Raiders and was a central figure in one of pro football's all-time great plays. The thoughts and deepest condolences of the Raider Nation are with the Squirick family at this time. After spending his first four NFL seasons with Los Angeles from 82 to 85, Squirick appeared in two games for the Dolphins during the 1986 campaign. In 55 career regular season games with eight starts with the Raiders and Dolphins, Squirick recorded three sacks, an interception, and two fumble recoveries. He was a second-round pick out of Illinois in the 1982 draft. Squirick lived in the Cleveland area following his playing days with his wife Penny and their two children, Jacob and Cassandra. The couple also shared a grandchild with a second one on the way. Squirick ran a cleaning and janitorial service in that area. And once again, he died January 5th at the age of 64. And when we find out a cause, we will certainly report it here at Sports News. In other news, Frank Ryan wasn't your average NFL quarterback. This article by the Associated Press came out January 6th, and it appeared in publications worldwide. His arm helped make the Cleveland Browns champions. Frank Ryan's intellect earned him wider acclaim off the field. Ryan, who led the Browns to their last NFL title in 1964 while spending his offseason getting a doctorate in mathematics, passed away at the age of 87. Ryan's family said that he died while being cared for at a nursing home in Connecticut. He had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and the family said chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, is suspected to have played a role in the progression of that disease. Ryan donated his brain to Boston University's CTE Center for study. Our hearts are with the family and friends of Frank Ryan as we honor the life of a Browns icon and championship-winning quarterback, says the Browns in social media. In the 1964 title game, Ryan threw three touchdown passes to wide receiver Gary Collins as the Browns shocked Hall of Famer Johnny Unitas and the heavily favored Baltimore Courts 27 to nothing on December 27. Cleveland hasn't won a football championship since and remains one of four teams never to make the Super Bowl. However, with Ryan and Hall of Fame running backs Jim Brown and Leroy Kelly, the Browns were a perennial power in the early to mid-60s. Just months after winning the 64th title, the last for any of the city's three major professional teams for 52 years until the Cavaliers won the NBA crown in 2016, Ryan got his Ph.D. from Rice, where he played college ball in his home state of Texas. He went on to teach math at Case Western Reserve in Cleveland and later at Yale and at Rice. Ryan is also credited with helping create an electronic voting system that modernized the U.S. House of Representatives. A three-time Pro Bowler with the Browns, Ryan spent seven seasons with Cleveland, compiling a 52 wins, 22 losses, and two ties record as a starter. 
He led the league in passing touchdowns in 1964 and again in 66. Although Cleveland rode its ground game with the great Brown and later Kelly to many wins, Ryan was one of the league's top passes and threw at least 25 touchdown passes in three seasons. He also played for the L.A. Rams and Washington before retiring after the 1970 seasons. Ryan also served for 10 years as the athletic director at Yale. During his 13-year playing career, Ryan passed for 16,042 yards and 149 touchdowns while going 57 wins, 27 losses, and three ties as a starter. Ryan is survived by his wife, Joan, and the couple celebrated their 65th wedding anniversary last year. Funeral arrangements were still being finalized. Turning to baseball now, and Wander Franco, he's gotten himself into a heap of trouble. And here are three articles that uh, take us up to date. This article by Juan Arturo of ESPN News Services and the Associated Press, and it came out on January 1st. Tampa Bay Rays shortstop Wander Franco was arrested on Monday in his native Dominican Republic after being interviewed by prosecutors investigating him for alleged inappropriate relationships with minors. Franco appeared before prosecutors while accompanied by two lawyers days after not showing up for a meeting with prosecutor Olga Dina, a source confirmed to ESPN. Monday's interview lasted nearly three hours. Olga Dina Lavarias, that is the prosecutor, had originally requested Franco to appear on December 28th, two days after prosecutors and police visited two of Franco's property in Banay, the all-star player's hometown some 37 miles southwest of the capital of Santo Domingo. They did not find the 20-year-old player at home. Franco's arrest was the result of not showing up for Thursday's requested meeting. Franco must be brought before a judge within 48 hours, according to Dominican law. No criminal charges have been filed against Franco in relation to the allegations of inappropriate relationships with minors. At least two people have filed legal action against Franco, who also is under investigation for allegedly having a relationship with a third minor although there haven't been any formal complaints to authorities from the third girl. He was paid on paid administrative leave in August by Major League Baseball, which is also investigating the allegations. When Franco was placed on leave, the Rays said that they supported the league's decision and would help the investigation in any way possible. Since then, the Rays have not commented on the situation. In November of 2021, 70 games into his career, Franco and the Rays agreed on an 11-year, $182 million contract extension. And this article by ESPN News Services, also on January 1st, Tampa Bay Rays shortstop Wando Franco appeared at a prosecutor's office in the Dominican Republic to address allegations that he had inappropriate relationships with minors. Franco appeared with his new legal team led by attorneys Tio Diceo Yaquez Encarnacion 
and Juan Francisco Rodriguez Consoro. Although the details of the meeting were not known, the appearance took place four days after Franco did not respond to a summons to the special prosecutor's office for children and adolescents. And as we said earlier, Franco was placed on administrative leave in August by Major League Baseball, which is also investigating. When Franco, who is 22, was placed on leave, the Rays said that they supported the league's decision and would help in the investigation. And fast forwarding to January 5th, this article by the Associated Press, and it came out in publications worldwide. A judge on Friday ordered the conditional release of Tampa Bay Rays shortstop Wander Franco while he is investigated for allegations he had a relationship with a 14-year-old girl and gave her mother a car and thousands of dollars in exchange for her consent. The judge said that Franco is allowed to leave the Dominican Republic but must return once a month to meet with authorities. He also was ordered to pay two million Dominican pesos, which is thirty-four thousand U.S. dollars, as a type of deposit as the investigation continues. Franco did not speak to reporters after the hearing. During a bathroom bathroom break earlier in the day, he briefly told reporters that everything is in God's hands. Reporters who gathered outside the courthouse clapped after the ruling and shouted "Boss, Boss!" in reference to Franco. Franco's father, also named Wander Franco, exclaimed, God is just. The 22-year-old all-star is accused of commercial sexual exploitation and money laundering. The judge in the case, Romaldi Marcellino, had several options for a ruling. Release Franco on bond, temporarily arrest him, prevent him from leaving the Dominican Republic, or demand that he make occasional appearances until the investigation or the trial has ended. The girl's 35-year-old mother, who faces the same accusations as Franco, was ordered held under house arrest as the investigation continues. She smiled slightly as she left the courtroom, but did not comment. The AP is not naming the woman to preserve her daughter's privacy. Franco was detained Monday in the northern province of Puerto Plata, hasn't been charged with any crimes. The judge has recently received a nearly 600-page document detailing the evidence the prosecutors gathered during a month-long investigation. The athlete's lawyers had not commented other than saying that Franco was doing fine. Prosecutors said the investigation began after they received an anonymous tip in July stemming from someone who saw a media post alluding to the relationship. The AP has not been able to verify the reported post. Authorities have accused Franco of taking the minor away from her home in Puerto Plata in December of 2022 and having a four-month relationship with her with consent from the girl's mother. They accused Franco of sending the mother monthly payments of $1,700 for seven months and buying her a car in order to allow the relationship and let her go out with him wherever she wanted. The girl also was quoted as saying that she had demanded that a local digital media site publish an item about her alleged relationship with the baseball player because she was tired of her mother 
whom she accused of taking Franco's money and not sharing any of it with her. Days later, Franco published a live video alleging it was a scheme to extort money from him. In September, authorities raided the home of the girl's mother and seized 800,000 Dominican pesos, about $13,700, as well as $68,500 they said was found hidden behind a frame. Another seizure at a different home found a guaranteed certificate from a local bank for 2.1 million Dominican pesos, about $36,000, they said was delivered by Franco for the commercial and sexual exploitation of the girl. In addition, they seized a Suzuki Swift worth $26,600, according to this document. Authorities noted that days before the car was bought, the teenager's mother had the equivalent of $821 in her bank account. The mother also bought property in Puerto Plata worth $36,000, they said. Authorities also state that Franco's mother had sent money to the girl's mother, but she has not been charged in the case, even though they said that she got involved to avoid traces of her son with the accused. Franco arrived at a court in Puerto Plata on Friday morning and remained silent while being escorted through a group of journalists that peppered him with questions. The girl's mother, who works at a bank and wearing sunglasses, also declined comment as she was escorted to the courtroom. Outside, a small group of young Dominican players donned in baseball attire gathered to support Franco, carrying posters that read, Free Franco and We Are All Franco. Franco was having an all-star season before being sidelined in August when authorities in the Dominican Republic began investigating claims that he had been in a relationship with a minor. MLB launched its own investigation and placed Franco on the restricted list on August 14th before moving him to administrative leave on August 22nd. And once again, Franco signed an 11-year, $182 million contract extension in 2021. His salary last year and this year is $2 million per season. The name Andrelton Simmons might be familiar. He's a four-time Golden Glove shortstop. He has announced his retirement. This article by the Associated Press came out on January 5th. Andrelton Simmons, the four-time Golden Glove winning shortstop during his 11 years in the majors, has decided to retire. Simmons, who's 34, made the announcement via an Instagram post from his agency, ISE Baseball. Simmons was selected by the Atlanta Braves in the second round of the 2010 amateur draft. The Curacao native made his big league debut with the Braves in 2012. Simmons is a 263 hitter with 70 home runs and 444 RBIs in 1,226 career games. He also played for the Los Angeles Angels, Minnesota Twins, and the Chicago Cubs. He made his last major league appearance with Chicago in July of 2022. He won the Golden Glove Awards in 2013 and 2014 with Atlanta, and again 2017 and 2018 with the Los Angeles Angels. For all you Rockies fans, here's an article about Todd Helton, and it was 
written by Patrick Saunders. He is a writer for the Denver Post, and it came out on December 5th from Nashville. Todd Helton was talking Rockies baseball on Tuesday afternoon. The club's iconic first baseman, who's on track towards election to the National Baseball Hall of Fame when votes are announced on January 23rd, remains passionate about the team that he suited up for during his entire 17-year career. Despite the Rockies' 103-loss season in 2023, really tough, he said, Helton hopes the young prospects that he's working with will embrace being a part of the Rockies. Hopefully, they see the pride that I take in being a Colorado Rocky, Helton said from the club's suite at the Gaylord Opryland Hotel and Convention Center. Take pride in the city and the team. Yeah, it's not a storied tradition, but we've had some really good players come through there, and I think they should know the history of the team and take pride and be excited to be a Colorado Rocky. Helton, who lives full-time in his native Knoxville, Tennessee, is providing his input during the winter meetings. I'm reviewing some film and taking a look at some players and talking about possible trades, the 50-year-old Helton said. I'm putting my in my two cents. Helton's official title is Special Assistant to General Manager Bill Schmidt. The former first baseman works with Rockies minor leaguers primarily as a part-time hitting coach. He sees potential in players like middle infield, infielder uh, Dale Amador and outfielder Jordan Beck and Benny Montgomery. He's also spent time scouting college players. The most exciting thing that I've done, the most productive, is watching the amateur players that we are thinking about taking in the draft. There are some good hitters, some impact-type bats that are exciting to see. Helton said he's especially impressed with Wake Forest first baseman Nick Kurtz. Helton, who retired from baseball after the 2013 season, acknowledges that he's not around players enough to be their hitting coach per se, but hopes that he's teaching the players some baseball lessons. I talk about their approach and what they can expect, he said. I talk about adjustments that they need to make now so that when they go up a level that they will still be able to compete. Helton, who hit 316 and had a career on-base percentage of 414, does have a pet peeve about many of today's young players. I can't stand watching players hit with two strikes now, he said. They swing like it's a 3-0 count. I talk to the Rockies' young players a lot about that, about being able to put a ball in play when a ball needs to be put in play. This past season, Helton was impressed by rookie shortstop Esquivel Tovar and rookie left fielder Nolan Jones. I thought Tovar had a really good first year, and he's something to get excited about, Helton said. Jones is a young guy who impressed. What surprised me about him was his defense in the outfield. I thought of him as a first base guy. Helton has worked quite a bit with first baseman Michael Toglia, the club's top pick in the 2019 draft out of UCLA. Though Toglia has flashed a good glove at first, he struggled at the plate and finished last season at AAA Albuquerque. In 76 big league games over two seasons, the six foot five, 230-pound Toglia has slashed a 187, 246, 325 line with six home runs and a 34.6% strikeout rate. 
He can pick it around the bag, Helton said. He's got to cut down his strikeouts. He's got to cut down on his swing. He's a big guy, and he's got a lot of power. He can shorten his swing up and still have a lot of power. Helton nearly made it to the Hall of Fame last year, garnering 72.2% of the vote and falling 11 votes short of the 75% required for election. It was his fifth year on the ballot. History says that Helton will be making his induction speech in July in Cooperstown. His support from voting members of the Baseball Writers Association of America grew from 52% in 2022 to 72.2% last January. Of the 22 players who have reached the 70th percentile before their final ballot, only pitcher Kurt Schilling has failed to reach Cooperstown. You might remember a while back that we read so many historic Major League Baseball moments for Dusty Baker upon his retirement. We never got through them all, so we're just going to dive into one more before we head over to Dart. So this one is the Cubs curse continued with the Bartman game. Ten years into his career with the Giants, Baker had done it all except for the one big thing, winning a championship. He quickly realized he would not do so with San Francisco, who made little effort to keep him once Baker's contract expired after the 2002 season. Two weeks later, Baker got his next chance. He became manager of the Chicago Cubs. The Cubs team that Baker took over was not a great one. Chicago had lost 95 games in 2002 and his premier player, slugger Sammy Sosa, was still productive but on the verge of a steep decline. It was also an old team. The standout unit on the club was a dynamic, hard-throwing rotation that featured Kerry Wood, Mark Pryor, Carlos Zambrano, and Matt Clement. Much to the dismay of future critics, Baker leaned on his rotation hard in 2003. All four of his rotation stalwarts started at least 30 games and compiled more than 200 innings. They also were the main reason that the Cubs won a soft National League Central and outlasted the Braves in a five-game National League Division Series. Chicago won three games in that series, started by Wood and Fryer. Baker has never been under the microscope more than he was on October 14th of 2003, one of the most discussed games in baseball history, the Bartman game, a contest remembered for a fan who bore little to no blame for the loss. That was on Baker and his team. People now tend to forget a couple of things about this game. For one, Pryor was dominant, an ace oozing pure pitching filth. We didn't know then what would become of a career wrecked by injury. We only knew that he stifled the Marlins for seven innings in game six, putting the Cubs six outs away from the fall classic and seemed all but invincible. Then it all came apart. Fryer faltered. The bullpen melted down and the team collapsed around them all as the Marlins plated eight stunning runs. It has Nothing to do with the curse, Baker said, always the pragmatist. It has to do with fan interference and a very uncharacteristic error by Alex Gonzalez. History has nothing to do with this game, nothing. That leads to the other thing that people now seem to forget. 
It wasn't the last game. There was a game seven, and the Cubs blew a lead in that game, too. In that case, with Wood leaving with an unsightly season-ending pitching line. All right. In our final article, Luke Littler. He is 16. He falls in World Darts final, winning $250,000. This article by the Associated Press came out January 3rd in publications worldwide. Luke Littler's history-making run at the World Darts Championship ended Wednesday when the 16-year-old sensation was beaten 7-4 in the final by Luke Humphreys. The unseated Littler was debuted at the tournament and would have become the youngest winner of darts' biggest prize, but lost an epic match at the Alexandra Palace in London. At one point, the teenager had the chance to take a 5-2 lead, only for world number one Humphreys to come back to win five straight sets, his first world title and 500,000 pounds, which is $630,000 in prize money. Honestly, I was thinking in the back of my mind, get this one now, because he's going to dominate world darts soon, Humphreys said after lifting the trophy. He is an incredible talent. I had to win this one tonight, but he's going to win plenty, I'm sure. As runner-up, Littler won 200,000 pounds or 250,000 U.S. dollars in prize money and looks likely to contend for major titles for years to come after making history by becoming the youngest finalist. Littler's run had seen his fame rise as he made front page headlines. He also moved up to 32 in the world ranking after taking the tournament by storm. I'm happy. Top 32. Runner-up in my debut. Unbelievable, he said. Littler won the world youth title last year and was already earning a big reputation within the sport before this championship. But his performances took many by surprise after knocking out two former world champions in Raymond Van Barsveld and Rob Cross to reach the final. While his showmanship on the stage proved popular with rowdy crowds at the tournament, his easygoing nature off it has added to his charm. Speaking ahead of the final, he said that he would stick to his pre-match routine of eating a ham and cheese omelet and then later a pizza. You will never see a 16-year-old kid as down-to-earth as him. He's just something else, Humphrey said. He's one of the best players in the world, no doubt about it. Humphreys proved a challenge too far for Littler. The number three seed had gone into the tournament on the back of winning three major titles in the space of two months and blasted his way to the final with a 6-0 win against Scott Williams to extend an 18-game winning run. But there were still moments when Littler looked capable of completing one of the unlikeliest triumphs in sport. After an uneasy start, he twice came back from a set down to level a match at 2-2 before racing to a 4-2 lead. He missed a double to win a fifth set, and Humphreys took charge from there. Multiple champion Michael Van Gerwen remains the youngest player to win the World Darts Championship after his victory in 2014 when he was just 24. Jaleigh Klassen was 21 when he won the now-defunct British Darts Organization World Title in 2006. Littler from Runcorn in northwest England turned 17 later this month and still has time on his side to set a new record. Well, that's all the time we have for sports this week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Sports News.
My name is Philip Bradbury.